Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Tatiana Darugina, Associate Professor of Finance and Shibik Faculty Fellow at the Gee School of Business at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. It's the main University of Illinois campus. And today we're going to be talking about new research that Tatiana and her co-author Julian Reif have been undertaking on the impacts of chronic air pollution exposure on life expectancy. They've been pioneering some new techniques that allow for better estimations of the long-run impacts uh, compared with the short-run impacts that are often reported by economists. So the pair's research offers what I would argue are some sobering findings, as well as one kind of key uplifting one. And for those of you who love the research weeds, we're also going to talk about some innovations in methodology today. Stay with us. Hi, Tatiana. It's really nice to be here with you in person in the RFF offices today. So thanks for coming on Resources Radio while you're visiting uh, RFF. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Uh, Well, you are an economist by training, um, but you're now at a business school, and I noted that you're an associate professor of finance. So can you say just a little bit more about your research interests and maybe how you ended up where you are today? Sure. My research interests broadly fall into the field of environmental economics. Uh, Much of my work has been on the economic impacts of natural disasters and the health effects um, of air pollution. Uh, And... Our uh, finance department actually has a group of applied economists uh, called the Center for Business and Public Policy. And a lot of the research that we've done uh, there does focus on non-traditional, or I would say non-finance uh, topics, and, and that is by design. So I joined explicitly as a non-finance person uh, recruited by a finance department. Interesting. So does that mean there's a cohort of economists there with you? Is this sort of something that the university has really carved out as a, a specialty within its business school? Yes, it wasn't so much university driven, but um, or originated from uh, the finance department because some of the uh, members were doing kind of less traditional finance topics and the uh, finance department wanted to expand in that. Um, so my um, co-author, Julian Reif, is also there. And uh, Nolan Miller and uh, David Molitor have uh, been there for a long time. Don Fullerton just retired. Um, he's a well-known environmental economist. And uh, we had a new person, uh, Mackenzie Alston, join us uh, last year. So we're a small but mighty group. Very cool. Well, uh, so the piece of research that we're going to be talking about today focuses on, again, just to reiterate, on the long-run impacts of chronic air pollution on mortality, and in particular, on comparing estimations of those long-run impacts with what I believe are more kind of typical analyses of shorter-term impacts. So there's going to be a lot to unpack here today. Um, But again, this difference between long-run impacts, short-run impacts, different types of analyses. Let me start by asking you, why were you and Julian keen to explore this research question overall? Over the course of my research, I encounter a lot of uh, reports from the World Health Organization and similar organizations talking about how many people are killed by uh, pollution each year, prematurely killed. And when you look at the sources for those numbers, they're usually from epidemiological uh, studies that correlate um, life expectancy with ambient 
pollution levels. Now, these studies are aware of the potential biases in interpreting simple correlations as causal, so they try to control for a large number of potential confounders, but economists have long realized that there's only so much you can do in adding, you know, in accounting for um, variables. At some point, you run into the problem of things that you cannot uh, observe and that's when you need to bring in different methodology, which economists have done, uh, you know, going back, um, you know, over 20 years now uh, with the first sort of what we call quasi-experimental studies. But these studies um, have a major limitation in that they typically focus on health outcomes of one year or less, sometimes a month, sometimes a week, sometimes even same day. And it made us wonder if this is one reason why we still see the epidemiological estimates being used, because while they might have a lot of flaws methodologically, the quasi-experimental research done by economists has another major flaw, and that is not being able to consider things like life expectancy, but just looking at, you know, mortality over one year. Hmm. So the ranges that you talked about there are considered short term, that one month, even one day, all the way up to a year is considered kind of a short term impact for this or a short term, short run analysis for this purpose. Is that right? Yeah, I would consider them short term outcomes in the sense that they cannot be used to say by how much someone's life was cut short. You really want to go out. I mean, you know, there, I don't think there's a magic interval right. <laughs> over where where something goes from short, short run, run to long run. Long run. <laughs> yeah. It's a continuum. But in general, just having one year worth of outcome is not going to be probably good enough for the World Health Organization. Got it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to talk a little bit about kind of another important contextual piece of this, which is about the different mortality pathways that air pollution can lead to. So, you know, some of the numbers that you cite in the paper are pretty stark, pretty sobering, to use that word again, uh, about kind of the scale of the problem, that there are really significant impacts from air pollution on morbidity and mortality. But what are the actual pathways that we're talking about there? And and you mentioned a few of those in the paper. You mentioned that um, air pollution can, for example, lead to hardened arteries in otherwise healthy individuals. Um, and that can in turn lead to heart disease. So that's kind of one pathway. And I will note that that type of impact falls into the category, I believe the term that it's in the paper is accelerated aging. So things that happen to people, but air pollution makes them happen faster. Is that right? Right. That's one way to think about it is um, air pollution, um, you know, damages your body, damages your cells. Um, some interesting correlational research has found that uh, people uh, who have more lifetime exposure to air pollution have shorter telomeres on their DNA. Every time our cells uh, replicate, the telomeres shorten and shorter uh, they're at the end of, uh, you know, chromosomes, uh, and, uh, the shorter sort of the telomeres that that's considered a marker of aging. And so we see this correlation at the cellular level, even, uh, where it looks like air pollution is, uh, causing, uh, damage that yes, basically speeds up the process. Of hmm. aging. Okay. Very, again, interesting and sobering. And then 
There's another type of impact. I think it's fair to categorize this as a different type, but where, you know, air pollution can affect, let's say, the respiratory and cardiovascular systems of people who might already be very frail. Um, and that represents kind of a different kind of impact. So yeah, maybe you can say a little bit more about the distinctions between those types and why that distinction matters. And then, yeah, it's just to, again, put that all in context. Yeah. And, and, you know, I should say that this, the second type of, um, impact where it's really the already frail individuals who are being affected, um, through their respiratory system, through their cardiovascular system. I think that is what gives rise to some of the skepticism, uh, surrounding these, uh, studies that focus on short, term outcomes, you know, a year or less is, well, how long would these individuals have lived? This is not to say that prolonging someone's life by a year is not valuable, uh, but it really matters if um, the person would have lived for five more years had air pollution not killed them, or if they would have died, you know, a few days later. Um, and so this kind of phenomenon is called uh, mortality displacement, where um something kills people that would have died very soon otherwise. And it happens not just with pollution, or it's thought to happen not just with pollution, but with heat waves. For example, the individuals that die as a result of heat waves uh, tend to be um, pretty frail. And the obvious air pollution deaths also tend to happen to uh, pretty frail people if we're talking about acute kind of very short run uh, exposure to extra air pollution. Mm-hmm. And for the purposes of this study, you were particularly looking at SO2. Is that right? It's sulfur dioxide. That was the kind of pollutant um, that you were looking at most closely? Yes. So um, sulfur dioxide is a pollutant that's emitted by coal-fired power plants mostly. Um, and during our sample uh, period, which is 1972 to 1988, it was the most widely monitored uh, pollutant in the United States. Uh, it was also much more prevalent than it is today. Uh, since the 1970s, uh, SO2 concentrations have dropped by uh, over 90% uh, in the U.S. Um, so we've really cleaned up coal-fired power plants, partly by getting rid of them, partly by just um, having them work less and have pollution control equipment um, and so on. But yes, that's what we focus on, partly because fine particulate matter, which is another important pollutant that is of big concern today, was not monitored in the 1970s. Uh, and also because SO2 converts to uh a subset of fine particulate uh, matter called sulfate. Uh, so our estimates are relevant for both thinking about SO2 and for thinking about fine particulate matter because it's a natural conversion process that will, you know, just happen as the SO2 travels through the air. Okay. All right. Um, so I want to go back to this kind of short run, longer run question for just a second. And you mentioned a couple of the kind of flaws that are sort of inherent in the way that these short run analyses are carried out. Why has it typically been more challenging knowing these flaws and knowing the benefits of, of estimating longer run impacts, but why has it been so challenging to do that historically? You know, quasi-experimental methods require there to be some variation that's as good as random. In this case, it has to be variation in pollution that's as good as random. So um, economists have identified a variety of such settings. Uh, for example, 
Um, one, there's a paper that uses the introduction of easy pass, which allowed cars to pass through um, toll roads more quickly, reducing emissions and lowering air pollution for people who lived um, around uh, the road. Uh, there are papers that use the NO2 uh, nitrogen dioxide trading program um, that uh, there, there were some changes in it that they're able to exploit and so on. Um, but all of in, in, in our paper, we use uh, changes in wind direction, kind of day-to-day changes. Um, so it's relatively straightforward to find these as good as random short-run changes in air pollution, a lot harder to find longer-run differences in air pollution that are as good as random. And even if you find them, then if people respond to them, then it's going to get harder and harder to interpret your estimates. So suppose all the sick people, um, you know, pollution goes up and all the sick people move away. Well, now you have to first follow those people over time. Um, so to make sure you're still tracking the right cohort of people. And then you also have to uh, try to account for the fact that they moved. So now their pollution exposure changed and maybe other things in their lives have changed. Um, and whatever mortality number you get out of that is going to be potentially really, really complicated to interpret. Mm, okay. Well, this is great. We're already, I promised research weeds, we're already (laughs) wading into them just a little bit. Um, But I want to continue our talk about methodology. And um, you and Julian note, I'm going to quote from the paper here for a second, that, quote, the main contribution of our study is the development and application of a new framework for estimating the long-run survival effects of chronic exposure to environmental hazards. So again, let's let's talk methodology for a bit. And given that kind of seminal contribution here, I wondered if you could talk me through the stages of your research. And so how do these kind of short-run analyses, looking at short-run mortality impacts, move ahead to where you're able to look at more chronic exposure and at these longer-run mortality impacts? Yeah, I'm happy to. So the first, you know, roughly half of our paper is very similar to what a typical quasi-experimental study would be. We use short-run variation in air pollution uh, with wind direction as a source of variation, which is very nice uh, and intuitive. And then we estimate the um, short-run mortality consequences of that. We're able to look at mortality up to a month following exposure, and then it just gets statistically more difficult to, you know, tease out the signal from everything else um, that's going on. So that is pretty standard. What we do that's really different is we um, take a model of survival that was recently developed by Yaris Mooney and Moreau, that's just basically a model of human survival that can incorporate a variety of dynamics into it. So if you've ever seen like a survival curve, um, you know, initially there there's high mortality at the very beginning of life. Um, so infant mortality is relatively high. Then mortality is very low for, you know, the next 20 years of life, um, at least in the United States. Then it picks up a little bit over the next 20 years. Then eventually, you know, it, it uh, picks up a lot more. Um, and so you get this, this curve. And so, um, this model can be used to 
uh, just represent typical human mortality curves with several parameters uh, that are calibrated. And our innovation is that we basically take our short-run estimates and we use them to inform the parameters of the model. So it has several parameters like alpha, delta, uh, epsilon, sigma. There's a couple of sigmas in there. Um, and so we sort of calibrated to um, the 1972 mortality profile to imagine a cohort that's born in 1972 to start with. And then we look at how we see mortality change at different ages as a result of one day SO2 exposure. And we use those changes to inform how the parameters of the model must be changing. And that allows us to have a structural model of how SO2 exposure affects your health. So ultimately, the model is one where there's latent health that changes every period. And when your health gets low enough, you die. Uh, and so we kind of infer what the underlying parameter dynamics are to create the mortality effects that we actually see uh, in the data. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this kind of makes me want to ask you a bit more about the data sources that you brought together as well, because it does sound like um, there were some very specific choices made around the use of wind direction data, for example. And also, I want to ask a little bit more about this 1972 to 1988 time period. Um, you mentioned that that's a time when SO2 was quite high, but are there other reasons that you kind of focused in on that time period related to data availability? Um, so yeah, maybe this is a moment where I can just ask you to speak a little bit more to the data that you brought to bear as you were actually um, calibrating this model? Sure. So, um, you know, the wind direction, uh, using wind direction as a source of experimental variation in air pollution um, is actually something we've done in a previously published paper in a different time period uh, with a different pollutant. And we showed that it worked quite well there. And, and the idea is really simple. You just look at what direction the wind is blowing from and you relate that to the pollution levels, controlling for some basic things like the average pollution levels in the county and, and some things called uh, fixed effects, uh, if our listeners are uh, familiar with those. Um, and the nice thing about using this kind of variation is it's plausibly random and it's not data heavy, because you can imagine doing an atmospheric transport simulation where you know where all the coal-fired power plants are, and you know how much they emit, and you have all the weather patterns, including temperature, and you model the atmospheric chemistry, and then you predict where pollution gets blown around. That can also be a good source of as good as random variation, but it's very computationally intensive and has fairly high data requirements because you need to know emissions and you need to know atmospheric conditions in detail. Um, in our case, um, you know, going back to the 1970s, there are no detailed atmospheric conditions, at least not on a granular enough uh, spatial level. But we do have so-called uh, reanalysis data where several data sets are combined together to um, infer something about atmospheric conditions that none of the data sets alone can do as good of a job 
uh, reproducing. And so we take these wind direction uh, reanalysis data and they give us broad regional wind patterns. And then uh, luckily we do need pollution data. So luckily the Environmental Protection Agency was monitoring uh, SO2 back then. So we bring that as well. And then we also have county uh, level daily mortality data uh, by uh, age, race, and sex, although we only break it down by age. We don't break it down further. Uh, and that is really the limiting factor in terms of the years spanned by our data set, because um, for some reason, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, decided that after 1989, you can no longer have daily data at the county level publicly available. So um, you would have to apply for restricted access through a research data center uh, of the U.S. Census Bureau and, and work with the data there, which we've decided not to pursue at this point. Hmm, interesting. But that data from 1972 to 1988 is in fact still publicly available. Yes, it oh, is publicly available. I, I I guess they maybe because it's a long time ago, they decided sufficiently a long time ago that it's okay to make it publicly available. Maybe there's fewer other public records that you could use to identify people. I'm not really sure, yeah. but yes, it is out there. Okay. Um, well, I have asked you a lot about methodology and data and innovations. I feel like I always do this to our poor listeners. I sort of leave the juicy stuff to the very end. But of course, I want to talk about your findings as well. Um, and again, just to reiterate, so you started with this acute exposure analysis. Um, and I want to, yeah, so let's begin there. Let's begin with, as you mentioned, that first part of your paper, which looks at that short run analysis. And so what can you, what can you say about what you were finding as you were combining these data sources together? I can give you, you know, the sort of numbers, which is that um, when SO2 goes up by uh, one part per billion, which is about 10% of uh, the mean in our sample, mortality goes up by about 0.08 uh, deaths per million on that same day. Now, that shouldn't mean anything to you because who knows what, you know, nobody thinks about daily mortality per million people, um, right? But I think a, a key interesting fact is that you know we find this one effect for one day mortality and then we look at longer run mortality still holding the change in so2 constant so the change in so2 is always you know one day change by one part per billion um and so a couple of things can happen theoretically first as you extend the time window um, if the individuals who are dying are those that are very frail and would have died soon anyway, you will actually see a declining pattern of your estimated effect. Um, so if some, if all those individuals would have died within a week, then when you extend the follow-up window to two weeks, you will find a zero. Uh, because over that period of time, there were no extra deaths caused by pollution, all those people would have died anyway. This is where I like to make a joke that, you know, the 200-year effect of pollution on mortality is zero. Is zero for yes, everyone, yes. zero. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, you look out 200 years, zero impact uh, of pollution and mortality. So that's why it's really important to kind of get the right time frame. Um, but what, what we find, and the other thing you could find is that the effect grows. Uh, and that would suggest that there is this accelerated aging 
um, happening, that there is this lagged um, effect of past exposure. And um, remarkably, if you think about, you know, our estimates being at the daily level, we do see uh, the effect growing with time. So that um, the monthly impact of this one-day shock is uh, about twice as large as the one-day um, impact, which suggests that, uh, you know, some people are not being killed immediately, but are dying as a result of this exposure a week, two weeks, um, three weeks later. When we break it down by cause, we also see something interesting. Um, when we look at cardiovascular causes, they behave um, in the same way as our overall estimate. They grow with time. Uh, when we look at uh, cancer mortality, um, in the short run, or, for, or very short run, on the same day, it's responsible for about a third of the extra deaths. But then when you go out about two weeks, the coefficient drops to zero and becomes statistically insignificant and stays insignificant, um, which is basically saying that um, SO2 is killing people who were already very sick. Um, because you obviously can't develop cancer and die from it in one day as a result of pollution exposure. So these individuals already had um, cancer and their deaths were not recorded as being due to pollution because that's obviously very hard to trace, but they were, um, they were very frail. So we find both of those patterns. We also find similar sort of distinct patterns by age. When we look at individuals who are 60 and older, we see an increasing pattern over time, kind of suggesting that lagged effects are um, prevalent for this population. When we look at um, younger individuals, so we don't find any effects for anybody 20 and under, but for people between 20 and uh, 59, we see one-day impacts but then they go to zero over a month. So suggesting that there are some younger people that are killed by air pollution, but they're very sick young people that do not have, they're very little life expectancy left in terms of the acute effect, of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so let's let's turn to the longer run innovations here and the kind of new approach that you took. And so we talked a little bit about the model and what does what does this model that you've calibrated show about the effect of chronic exposure on life expectancy compared to maybe what you would have guessed if you just took those short run estimates that you were talking about and extrapolated them. So, you know, you've got this kind of limited viewpoint that you can extrapolate for the long term versus the kind of more um, thorough long term estimates that you guys are doing with the model. How do those compare? So, you know, the, 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 what we call kind of the naive estimates are just a linear scaling of our monthly impacts. You sort of calculate what is the effect of each uh, age. You scale it up by, you know, 365 days if you want a year exposure, um, more if you want lifetime exposure, and then you kind of integrate over the age distribution to figure out the life expectancy estimates. So um, you get one number that way. When we use our model, which basically takes into account the fact that some individuals um, are not immediately killed by pollution, 
but become kind of sicker, lose some of their health as a result, and are then more likely to die later, we get much bigger estimates for for the older ages. So the naive model actually uh, overshoots um, at, at younger um, ages, kind of those below um, 55 or so, and then um, predicts much lower life expectancy impacts at older ages compared to our model of um, of chronic uh, exposure. Uh, and intuitively, it's because when we use our model for chronic exposure, um, initially, at, in terms of at early in life, the mortality impacts are trivial. They're not really there because most young individuals have very high level of health. And so changing their exposure by a little bit is not going to kill them when they're, you know, in their 20s or 30s. Um, but as those individuals age, then that little extra health capital um, from having less pollution starts making a big difference. Um, and in fact, we estimate that most of the benefits, survival benefits, accrue to those over the age of um, 65. So it's about three quarters. And about 90% are uh, for over the age of um, 50. Hmm. Very interesting. So everyone over age 50 really needs to move to someplace with very good air quality, right? Because the benefits accrue to them at sort of a disproportionate amount compared to the population well, overall. But these, but but our model actually has chronic exposure in it. So um, we basically, the, the counterfactual that we have is everybody is exposed to one unit less of SO2, but those benefits don't materialize until age 50. So it's kind of like, you know, if you're a a smoker, you're not going to get lung cancer in your 30s. But the fact that you smoked in your 30s might lead to lung cancer when you're in your late 50s and 60s. That's kind of what's happening here too. So it's not that people should only care about their exposure when they're old. It's that the consequences of early life exposure happen at much older uh, ages. Yes. Interesting. Well, I did promise our listeners one uplifting finding. And this is how I interpreted it. And it's very much related to sort of what we're talking about right now in terms of the kind of long-term um, benefits. And I'll just quote again from the paper where you noted that 90% of the survival benefits accrue after the first 50 years of life, as you just mentioned, uh, implying that most of the 1970 Clean Air Act's health benefits have yet to emerge for cohorts born after its passage. And so I actually did take that as somewhat of kind of a an optimistic note, which is that, you know, the flip side of those kind of uh, negative effects showing up much later is that the benefits also show up much later. And so can you kind of help us interpret that comment just a little bit? And am I fair to think that that is kind of a positive story coming out of this? I mean, I guess kind of going back to, uh, and, and, you know, typically people talk about what are the mortality impacts when pollution goes up by one unit, right? But in fact, we've had huge reductions in air pollution in the United States. Um, SO2, the largest in terms of the shares, but other pollutants as well. So that, I think, is really good news that the air is much cleaner now than it was in the 1970s. And our estimates do suggest that um, the benefits are large and that we're, we haven't even seen them all yet. Now, here I will make an economist caveat is that um, our estimates should be interpreted as the benefits that would materialize with sort of no behavioral change, because we're sort of using these short-run um, shocks 
in air pollution that people are unlikely to respond to by moving and so on. So we think this is, you know, very policy relevant because it tells you what would the effects be if people took no action. But it's different from kind of predicting, you know, we're not predicting what U.S. life expectancy will go up by, but it's what would it go up by had people, you know, not done anything in response. Because obviously we've got a lot of other things going on right now. So I don't want to say that, um, you know, we're making very specific predictions about where life expectancy going, but we are estimating, you know, very substantial benefits of uh, the reduction in air pollution over the past 50 years. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, well, this has been great. I really appreciate your taking the time. You've done a fantastic job at talking us through the methodology. Uh, I know there is a significant subset of our audience that really loves this stuff too. So fixed effects will be music to ears for some of our listeners <laughs> okay, out there. Great. But let me close with our regular feature, Top of the Stack. We're just looking for recommendations of other good content that you might want to suggest to our listeners. Feel free to let your imagination run wild. And what's on the top of your stack? Um, so, uh, you know, as you know, I'm uh, from Ukraine, uh, originally, so that's been taking up a lot of my headspace uh, in, in time over the past, uh, year and a half. So, but one, um, book that I'm reading right now is, uh, Marie Yovanovitch's, um, uh, autobiography, Lessons from the Edge. Um, she was an ambassador, uh, to Ukraine during the Trump administration, and, uh, she was involved, um, in some of the scandals surrounding Ukraine in a positive way, I should <laughs> say. Um, she, you know, she was kind of, uh, I would say the hero, uh, in that situation. Uh, and I had the privilege, um, of meeting her, uh, in the past year. And, uh, her, um, autobiography is just fantastic. And that's what I would recommend to the listeners. That's a great recommendation. We'll take it. We'll post a link to it. So thank you again. I know this is the very beginning of your visit to RFF. So I personally will look forward to seeing you over the next few days. And thank you for starting off here at Resources Radio. My pleasure. Happy to be here. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.